Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our second Grand Rounds of the year. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of introducing one of my mentors, Dr. Ramon, Ramon Arroyo Padro, to speak on vasculitis. Dr. Arroyo, with a Health Profession Scholarship from the United States Air Force, graduated from the University of Puerto Rico School of Medicine. He completed his residency at San Juan Veterans Affairs Hospital and went on to fellowship at Wolford Hall Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, at Lackland Air Force Base. He served in the United States Air Force for 20 years and held many positions, such as the Chief of Rheumatology, the Rheumatology Fellowship Program Director, and Military Consultant to the Surgeon General for Rheumatology. He has had a significant international presence on medical missions in 11 countries during his time in the military. He had retired from the Air Force in 2005, but stayed on as the Civilian Program Director for the Rheumatology Fellowship. And this was on Brook Army Air Force, or Army Base, sorry, and the San Antonio Military Medical Consortium. He has over 70 publications and invited presentations at national meetings and international meetings. And I'm excited for him to speak on a topic he's very passionate about. And so without further delay, I welcome Dr. Ramon Arroyo Padre. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank Stephanie and Nicole for inviting me here in the rheumatology department to this distinguished institution, which I'm really honored to be here today, and also uh, to get to know a little bit about this beautiful area, uh, which is definitely uh, cooler than Texas, <laughs> despite of the heat waves that you guys are talking about. Uh, I. <clears throat> uh, I have a disclaimer, and it's that this presentation is my opinion and not that I, the department that I work for, it's a mandatory that we say this when we work for the Department of Defense. And I have been uh, a vasculitis consultant and a speaker for Genentech. Uh, what I hope today, within the next 50 minutes or so, is that you will end up having a good understanding of the ANCA-associated vasculitis. For that, I will provide you with the definition of the ANCA vasculitis, and I will go over the nomenclature, because there are so many syndromes that are in the vasculitis that in order for you to have a comprehension of the ANCA vasculitis, you need to know where do we put these syndromes in the context of all of them. Then I'll go over the epidemiology and risk factors mainly associated with two forms of ankyovasculitis, granulomatosis with polyangitis and microscopic and polyangitis. I will talk about the pathogenesis because if we understand the pathogenesis, we can understand some of the clinical manifestation as well as management. And I'll conclude with management, which is uh, where we have a lot of new things that have been coming within the last few years. I will start, and I choose this case, which is of the many vasculitis cases that I've seen. I choose this one because it has a military relevance, and so you can have a little bit of a concept of where your taxpayer's money is going when we deal with the active duty from the medical point of view. So this is a 23-year-old active duty uh, United States Army military police, very healthy. She used to run six miles a day and who was sent to Afghanistan for the efforts of the war. And in November of 2011, she presented to the troop clinic with fatigue, cough, and she wasn't able to run more than two miles when she was running six miles without getting short of breath. 
And the strip clinic said, oh, you probably have a URI, and they gave her a CPAC and sent her back to the barracks. Then within a couple of weeks, she developed uh, hemoptysis and worsening of the shortness of breath, and she had developed multiple joint pains and aches and swelling of her knees. And she went to the truth clinic again, and this time they did a chest x-ray, and they found bilateral lower lobe infiltrates. They said, oh, you have a pneumonia. So they gave her a course of levoquin. And two days later, in the barracks, she had a syncope. She collapsed. She's brought to Kabul, where they intubated her. They transfused her, and she was transferred to Germany. Uh, while in Germany, you know, eventually they stabilized her, and she was transferred to our institution. But in Germany, I, I, when I received her, uh, which this was my Christmas present of 2011, uh, she had uh, a hemoglobin of eight. Her white cells were fine. She had elevated set rate and CRP. Oh, let me say one thing too. Throughout this lecture, I'm gonna give you a few clues in regard to vasculitis and rheumatology things. And here's the first one. If you have a patient who has arthritis, poly or monoarticular, and the CRP is more than 10, especially more than 15, think of three things, crystal, infection, and systemic vasculitis. We were talking last night about a CNS case that the CRP was 20, systemic vasculitis should have been included as, we, as you guys did. Her serum creatinine was 0.4, her red cells, she had red cells in the urine. Unfortunately, nobody looked at the urine, and this is very important to look at the urine because we see red cells and we see the morphic red cells. We already know what we're dealing with. Uh, her rheumatoid factor was positive, and then she was positive for the neutrophilic cytoplasmic antibody with an immunofluorescent pattern that we call the P anca or peripheral uh, anca uh, at a high titer. As expected, the specificity of this. Pianca was against myeloperoxidase. PR3, or proteinase 3 anca and anti-GBN antibodies were negative. She had normal C3, normal C4, negative hepatitis B, C, and quantiferin. Uh, the chest X-ray showed bilateral pulmonary infiltrates, and she underwent a bronchoscopy in Germany showing diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. Uh, they did a biopsy through BAST, and she had capillaritis. Things were negative for cultures and malignancy. And then she got transferred, and we initiated treatment in San Antonio. So in summary, we have a 23-year-old healthy woman that developed a renopulmonary syndrome with uh, presence of a PIANCA, positive MPO, and findings and imaging consistent with myeloperoxidase positive ANCA vascular microscopic and polyangiitis. We started treatment with rituximab as an, as an induction therapy, and to this time, she's doing really well. Uh, she, six months after we treated her, she got pregnant, had a baby, no problem. And uh, the only situation is that she can no longer be with us because this is not compatible with active duty service. So what is a vasculitis? A vasculitis is inflammation of a blood vessel. And this inflammatory process is caused by cells, mainly lymphocytes. And these cells must cause damage to the vessel wall. So there should be damage of the wall, as is shown in this picture. So as a consequence of this damage to the vessel wall, there is narrowing of the lumen of the blood vessel, and this will lead to 
ischemia or necrosis to the tissue that this blood vessel supplies. In addition, this area here that has been damaged can, can uh, become leaky and there's extravasation. And that's what we see local hemorrhage when we have vasculitis. And if this happens in an area of high pressure or bifurcation of blood vessels, they can, it's a weak area because we have damaged the, the internal elastic lamina of these blood vessels, and then you form an aneurysms. And these aneurysms, you could hear bruits on the exam, or they can rupture and bleed. So in summary, you know, we have inflammation of a blood vessel that causes anatomic changes, and based on the anatomic change, we will have clinical manifestation. From the stenosis of the occlusion, we have ischemia and infarction. From the extravasation, we see local bleeding. And from the form of the aneurysm, we can hear turbulent flow or bleeding. So now that we know what a vasculitis is, let's talk about uh, uh, another thing. Based on the size of the blood vessel where this process is involved, you will have different clinical manifestations. For example, if you have involvement of large vessel, you can have claudication. When we have small vessel involvement, like in the lungs and the kidney, we have pulmonary hemorrhage or GN. When we have involvement of the vein, we have thrombosis and of the skin that manifests as palpable purpura. Now that we know the definition, let's talk about how we classify these syndromes. How do we put them together? Because there are so many. We have so many blood vessels, different sizes everywhere and they're very complex. So we classify them based on the size that is predominantly involved in the process. That doesn't mean that a large vessel vasculitis is gonna be uniquely large vessel. They can have large of medium, but the main vessel that is involved with the process are the large ones. The large vasculitis are giant cell and takayasus. The medium vessel vasculitis are Kawasaki's and polyiris nodosa. Also here we include the uh, central nervous system vasculitis. And the small vessel vasculitis we divided into two groups, the ANCA-associated vasculitis and the immune complex. Briefly, let me mention a few things about the immune complex vasculitis. We have anti-GBM, we have IgA vasculitis. This is mainly seen in pediatrics with a triad of <clears throat> abdominal pain, arthritis, and skin rash. When it's present in adult, it tend to be recurrent, and it tend to have a worse prognosis and more renal involvement. We have uh, the cryoglinemic vasculitis. 90% of these are due to hepatitis C. Uh, and then we have one form that we call the hypocomplementemic urticarial vasculitis. This is a rare one that likes to present, instead of ischemic skin lesions, it likes to present with urticaria. But these urticaria are totally different from what you see in the allergy clinic. They tend to be painful or burning. They last more than 72 hours. They leave scar. And if you do a biopsy, you find leukocytoclastic vasculitis. In your chronic urticaria in the allergy clinic, they are small. They last less than 72 hours. They don't leave scar when they heal. And when you do a biopsy, you find edema. You might find some mast cells, but you don't see vasculitis. And most of these patients, especially the ones who are NA positive, will go into developed systemic lupus. And now the ANCA vasculitis, which is the topic of this lecture. We have four syndromes, and these are granulomatosis with polyangitis or GPA, formerly known as Wegener's granulomatosis. We have microscopic polyangitis, 
eosinophilic granulomatous with polyangitis, formerly known as Church-Strauss syndrome. And then there is what we call the renal limited disease. This is an ankyovasculitis that is only limited to the kidney, don't have other systemic manifestation, but it has a, it's as bad as when you have the systemic manifestation with, and the same prognosis as the one with the systemic manifestations. But the thing is not that easy. So there are not only these three classification I tell you, since there's such overlap and so much, many association, we have the varival vessel vasculitis that includes Bechet's and Coggins. That means that any blood vessel can be involved, veins, arteries, ar arterioles, any blood vessel. We have the single organ vasculitis that is involved in one organ, and the organ can be involved by a vasculitic process in a localized fashion. And usually this presents as a mass lesion and for example, I've seen it in the breast, appendix, gallbladder, testicle, and you remove this mass and they do pathology, reads that as a vasculitis. And most of the time, that's the treatment that is required when it's localized to an organ without causing, causing any organ-threatening disease. However, it can also be involved in one organ diffusely or in a location that could be organ-threatening, like retinal vasculitis or primary angiitis of the central nervous system, and these require more aggressive treatment and immunosuppression. And then we have the vasculitis associated with the connective tissue disease. These they are mainly medium to small vessel, and we have the one in which we know an ideology, like the hepatitis C cryo that I mentioned before, or hepatitis B associated polaris nodosa. And lately, the dermatologists have added to this classification skin involvement, if it's predominant or not predominant in the disease. So now that we know what is a vasculitis and we know all the different syndromes that are included in the vasculitis, let's go to the ANCA-associated vasculitis. So these are uh, necrotizing vasculitis that affect mainly small and medium vessels. Uh, they're associated with either PR3 or NPO ANCA. And uh, we have three syndromes, GPA, MPA, and EGPA. And these three syndromes, although we group them together within one, uh, they are probably three separate clinical entities in that they have distinguishing features, and I will go through some of those. They are not that common. The peak onset is in, usually in the 650s and 60s. And uh, based on what I heard about the population here, you should have at least one new patient every year and about over 10 to 13 in the rheumatology clinic or nephrology clinic in here. Uh, when we look at the uh, incidence of this disease, GPA tends to be more common in Northern European and Northern parts of the hemisphere. And as we go to the equator, the incidence goes down, but then MPA does the reverse. MPA tends to be more common in the equator. I tend to see also more MPAs than GPAs in Texas. Uh, with the exception in Japan, where MPA is very predominant, but not GPA. Uh, we, in rheumatology, we don't know the cause of anything, maybe only gout. So we don't know what causes lupus. <laughs> We don't know what causes lupus, we don't know what causes rheumatoid arthritis, but we know what's going on and we know the risk factors, and we know those really well. So what I'm gonna talk is about the risk factors for two of these vasculitis, which GPA and MPA, and a little bit about EGPA. And we know that, that there are infectious, uh, environmental, genetics, and drugs. So let's go through each and one of them. Let's start first with the infection risk factors. 
What we know is that this vasculitis is associated with staph aureus. And this comes from a study that was done a while ago in which uh, we found that uh, nasal carriers of staph aureus was quite, pre quite prevalent in patients with GPA. Look at 63% compared to with 25% of the control. And those patients who were nasal carrier of staph aureus had more relapsing disease and worse disease if you were a nasal carrier. And the theory or the hypothesis of how staph uh, is associated with this syndrome is that staph produces, uh, has a gene that produces a protein that inhibit PR3 and NPO. And as a consequence, the polymorphonuclear cells start to produce more PR3 and NPO, and then you have the excess of the antigen. And I will be talking more and more about this as we get to, get to the pathophysiology. And this is also what we always like to use, uh, CEPTRA, uh, not only for PJP prophylaxis, but to cover this nasal state when we treat uh, ANCA vasculitis. And if not, we use the mucopyrrhizin to if they're a nasal carrier. The other risk factor is environmental. This was a wonderful study that the nephrologists did years ago in four southern states, in which they compared a group of patients who had ANCA vasculitis. They all had renal disease. Uh, a group of rheumatoid and a group of control, and what they found is that the patient with the ANCA vasculitis had a two-fold higher exposure to silica compared to the control groups. And that was based on the type of occupations that they did. And the hypothesis here is that silica irritates the alveolar macrophage, and the alveolar macrophage produces cytokines when this happens that primes Poly. Prime poly means that makes the polymorphonuclear cell to express the PR3 and NPO. Back again, expression showing up the antigen. And I'm priming you all for the pathogenesis of the disease. <laughs> and, uh, and drugs. Let me talk about the drugs. The drugs, uh, we know that the drugs are associated with either ANCA production, like we have the ANA uh, drugs that can induce ANA. We have also drugs that induce ANCA. But they also can induce the syndrome. The three main drugs are PTU, which is not used a lot here, but it's used in Europe, uh, in Asia, a lot for hyperthyroid, hydralazine, and minocycline. And there has been some case reports with allopurinol. So when they, they uh, the, the specificity is usually against NPO and others, and most commonly the human neutrophilic elastase in the drug induced. When they get the syndrome, we treat it the same way that we treat the idiopathic, except that we remove the offending agent, and they might not need maintenance. Now, there's a condition which is called the levamisole-induced vasculopathy. And this is, uh, they use levamisole anti-helminthic agent to cut cocaine. And it gives, a, it gives a syndrome that looks a lot like GPA. So they snore the thing. So they get sinusitis, which is very common. Over 90% of the patients with GPA will have an ENT manifestation. It can cause uh, erosions of the turbinate. It likes to do erosion with the heart palate that we don't see in the ankyovasculitis. That's another little pearl. If we see an erosion of the heart palate, things of cocaine. But if we see erosion of the turbinate, both of them can do it. 
And then it gives a skin lesion that looks exactly like the vasculitic lesion. They look ischemic. I have a picture there. And they can have positive Cianca. So look, looks exactly like the syndrome. But when we do the biopsy, it's a vasculopathy, not a vasculitis. There's no damage to the vessel wall. And that's what makes it very different. And the treatment is to remove the cocaine. Otherwise, they will continue. Now, another pearl. If you have a patient in which comes like this and has a double positive ANCA, I mean it's C and P ANCA or NPO and PR3 positive at the same time and both are in high titer, think of cocaine-induced vasculopathy. Because in the syndrome, they are almost mutually exclusive. Less than 1% will have production of both, but if they have production of both in the real syndrome, one of them is going to be at a very low titer and the other one a high titer. The other thing is if you have a mismatch, so you do an immunofluorescence and it's CIANCA. So you expect that the specificity should be proteinase 3, but then the specificity is myeloperoxidase, think of an ANCA vascular, think of a uh, cocaine-induced vasculitis or vasculopathy, not vasculitis. And the reason is that, that they produce antibodies against all the different uh, neutrophilic enzymes, so like, like the uh, PR3, MPO, lactoferrin, elastase, etc. The other risk factor is genetics. We know that deficiency of alpha-1 antitrypsin is associated with GPA, and we also learned this through the genome-wide studies. Uh, and it makes sense because alpha-1 antitrypsin, you all are, not, are aware you inhibit elastase and the pulmonary issues that it causes. Well, it also inhibits PR3. So if you try to, you, you break down PR3, you try to produce more of the antigen. So back again, excess antigen, PR3 or MPO. And there's an association with HLA, but the association with the HLA is based on the HLA polymorphism that you have, you will produce the, the, the ANCA. So it's associated with the type of ANCA that you produce, not with the syndromes. And finally, epigenetics. So epigenetics are factors that can alter the chromosome without changing the underlying genetic sequence. And there's several. And we have studied in the ANCA vasculitis three of these, DNA methylation, histone modification, and non-coding RNA. And in summary, what happened in patients with the ANCA vasculitis is that they have demethylation of DNA regions that reach the PR3 and MPO. Also, there's acetylation of histones that opens the genes for the, the region of the PR3 and MPO. And what it happens at the end is we end up with the polymorphonuclear cells in patients with active disease that are full of PR3 and MPO, excess of PR3 or MPO, but not during inactive disease or in healthy control. And also the NA... Uh, uh, induced lupus is also due to the methylation of DNA. And we also know that if we had the methylation of DNA, it's very common in lupus as well, not only in the vasculitis. Now I'm going to go through the pathogenesis. So there has to be an antigen. We don't know what that antigen. We do know that cells of the innate immune system, like the, like the dendritic cell that I'm showing here, is presenting some antigen that we don't know through an MHC class 2 to a T cell. And when this happens, T cells activate the B cells, and the B cells will become the plasma cells that produce the ANCA. 
While this is all happening, all these cells are releasing cytokines, and these cytokines are priming the polymorphonuclear cells, which means that now the antigens, instead of being inside of the cell, they are expressed in the surface of the polymorphonuclear cell. When this happens, and if you produce the ANCA, the ANCA binds through the FAB to the antigens, in this case the LSAPR3, and through the FC receptors on the polymorphonuclear through the FC portion of the immunoglobulin. When these happen, we have these molecules in the surface of the poly that are adhesive molecules. They change conformation, and the poly who was just flowing through the blood now attaches to the endothelium. And when this happens, then you start releasing mediators of inflammation. There is activation of the complement cascade. It releases C3A, C5A, that brings other cells into the area, like the macrophage. And then it produces the histological picture that I showed you at the very beginning, damage of the vessel wall and the vasculitic syndrome. Uh, we know that the innate immunity is involved because of the dendritic cells that I mentioned before. And then we know that several cells are involved. Among the, let's start with the T cells. The T cells early in the disease in GPA is usually Th1, and thus Th1 is the one who produces TNF that is important for granuloma formation. And that's why we see granuloma in GPA, and we also see it in eGPA, but not an MPA. And then, based on the genetic of the individual, this, there's a shift. And the cells go from Th1 to Th2, and we see in the systemic syndrome predominant of Th1 and Th2 T cells. And I'm talking about this because it's going to target these cells in treatment. The other, the other cell that is involved is the B cell, not only because it produces the ANCA, but also because it produces the cytokines that primes the poly, and because it can also act as an antigen-presenting cell. And since we're talking about ANCAS, let me mention a few, mention few things about these, these antibodies. Uh, <clears throat> most of the patients with GPA are going to be positive for PR3, but few will produce uh, myeloperoxidase, antimyeloperoxidase. Most of the patients with MPA, the antigen will be against myeloperoxidase, but few do it against PR3. But as you see, not all of them are positive, so we have seronegative cases. And uh, about 25%, and this is, I don't, this is based on the literature, but in my practice I don't see that many with also associated anti-GBM. But it's important when you have this syndrome to order for GBM, because this, if there's a different, we do have to freeze when there's anti-GBM, but not for the, not for the syndrome with, that are negative for GBM. And we know that the ANCA are predictive of relapse, especially if you are PR3. About two-thirds of the patients who are PR3, the disease with relapse. And we know that they are involved in the pathogenesis. And here I have some evidence, but it's, given short time, let me go over clinical manifestation now. So we have three syndromes. These three syndromes share many things in common. So the three syndromes can have ANCA, but in eGPA, only 30% of them to 40% will have an ANCA. When they have the ANCA, they tend to have renal involvement. When they are seronegative, the eGPA tend to have cardiac, which is uncommon in the other two syndromes. All three syndromes will produce the same renal histology when the kidney is involved. 
And then we have in the three syndromes uh, certain characteristics that differentiate one from the other, and I'm going to go through these. So the first thing is that I put here, this slide is just that almost any organ can get involved. It's what I, this slide uh, means, and here are the different clinical manifestations that can happen in those organs. So as I mentioned initially, GPA can be localized, and actually we know that probably this disease starts in the ENT system and the respiratory system, and then it goes to the kidney. Uh, but 5% of the patient will remain uh, localized. However, the disease that is localized can be very destructive, and there's a lot of organ damage in this localized syndrome, and most of the patients are going to require not just steroid, but also other immunosuppressive. Now, ENT manifestation. 92% of patients with GPA will have some ENT manifestation. The main one will be uh, sinusitis, and, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, uh, and, and they can have uh, other manifestation. I put this one here, so the nasal involvement, because they like to ask about this in boards. Uh, so eventually the nasal involvement will lead to collapse because of damage of the cartilage and produce a saddle nose deformity. The other things that do this in rheumatology is relapsing polychondritic, magic syndrome, which is uh, mouth and oral ulcer with, with inflammatory cartilage. And then there are others, granulomatous diseases and infectious disorder that can cause this, like leprosy and tuberculosis. There's one manifestation, and in my 32 years of seeing these patients, I've seen them only once, uh, that is pathognomonic, and is this. It's strawberry gum. If you see a strawberry gum in a patient multi multiple organ system failure, you're probably dealing with GPA, uh, and not the tongue. tongue. Strawberry tongue is of Kawasaki's. Uh, <clears throat> now, there's a manifestation that is serious, and is a subglottic stenosis. The subglottic stenosis, uh, this is a selection bias, but it's about seen in about 8%. It tends to happen in the younger. Actually, that selection bias that I put that was in a pediatric study in Canada that they have a, a cohort of GPA children, and half of them had tracheal involvement. The, the tracheal involvement is more common in the younger and women. And the symptoms can be either acute or chronic, or can be due to active disease or to fibrosis for, or healing process. And I put here the symptoms. Mainly the most common ones are hoarseness and wheezing and stridor. The diagnosis is done through a PFT or when we get and do the laryngoscopy or bronchoscopy. And the treatment is to treat the systemic disease. So you treat the systemic disease, this improves. Some, if it's critically stenosed, uh, they need intralational steroids, so we need the help of ENT, usually. And sometimes they have even presented to ENT before, and then they send it to me. And in the treatment of the, the stenosis, we can do mechanical things like dilation, tracheostomy, stent placement, but the one thing that they should not get, and we as rheumatologists have to tell the ENT, is laser. Because for some reason, when they get laser treatment for this, it heals with more fibrosis and worsening of the stenosis. And it's amazing. I did. I, I went. I gave a talk of uh, ENT manifestations to the our ENT residency program, and uh, and more than half of the ENT 
uh, residents didn't know this. The eye. So the eye disease can also occur as, as, a, as a, without evidence of systemic disease. The most common are going to be scleritis and the pseudotumor. And as I <clears throat> mentioned before, the localized could be very destructive. And here's another little pearl. In rheumatology, uh, most of our diseases cause Zika, right, dryness. So uh, secondary Zika in rheumatoid, primary struggles. This is our, the only disease that causes a teary eye because it tends to block the lacrimal duct. Uh, <clears throat> the proptosis, uh, it tends to be in a lot of different from grave disease. And uh, we don't like to do biopsies of those lesions because it damages the optic nerve. So we do it by getting the anca, doing, looking at the differentials and other things. The lung. So I put here in GPA. GPA likes to do mainly pulmonary nodules, and those nodules can cavitate. And here's another pearl. GPA can give you almost anything in the lung. It can do fibrosis, effusions, pulmonary embolisms, because they tend to clot, pulmonary hypertension. It can give you infiltrates that come and go. It can give you cavitations. The one thing that these syndromes don't like to do is hilar adenopathy. So when I get consulted for a patient to rule out a vasculitis in the unit who has multi-organ system, and I see hilar adenopathy, th these go down in my differential. Then I think of sarcoid. Then I think of fungal infection. Then I think of malignancy. MPA likes to do uh, alveolitis and diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. And then, you know, EGPA like to do uh, steroid-resistant bronchial asthma, so obstructive. Now, uh, I want to make a few comments in regard to pulmonary hemorrhage. Pulmonary hemorrhage, you know, the most common symptoms are get progressive dyspnea, cough, and then you see a drop in hemoglobin. That's a big clue. Not all of them might have hemoptysis. When you have a patient that is diagnosed with pulmonary hemorrhage, they should have an ANCA and an anti-GBN. The BIL is very helpful uh, in to document that they are having alveolar hemorrhage. And uh, sometimes we might not need a lung biopsy, because sometimes these patients require mechanical ventilation, and they're quite ill, and it's really hard to get a biopsy. Uh, and then if they get a pneumothorax on the biopsy, it complicates the things. But in a quite clinical judgment, when you have a patient with a diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, she has a PR3 or an MPO anca and a high titer, might have had sinusitis before, or you see a skin rash, or you see a neuropathy, then you're probably dealing with the disease, and we don't need a biopsy. But you need to use a lot of clinical judgment for that. And one more comment of diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, if the patient presents with hypoxia, that's not good. Uh, plasma exchange in this study was of no benefit, and I will talk a little bit later about a peribat study uh, that also showed no benefit. Uh, and uh, in this study, these patients uh, responded well to rituxan compared to cytoxan, including the ones who are mechanically ventilated. The kidney. Uh, all three syndromes will do the same histology when the kidney is involved. A focal segmental necrotizing GN with or without crescents. And the thing is that it's posi-immune. And that sometimes helps a lot. We have a pulmonary syndrome, we do the kidney biopsy, and we see immunofluorescence. Oh, this is lupus, this is not uh, ankyovasculitis. Because lupus can present with a renal pulmonary syndrome as well. The... Uh, 
The presentation is usually hematuria proteinuria, uh, rarely nephrotic, very rare to see nephrotic branch proteinuria. And remember that in 25% of the patient, it can be localized just to the kidney. And the one thing is, one, we have this histology. This disease is lethal if you don't treat it. They all die. And they usually die within five months if you don't treat it. Uh, of course, if we have the focal segmental GN, they tend to have more prognosis. If we see sclerosis, as it's shown here, about uh, the prognosis is not as good. So based on the histology, we also can determine prognosis. Neurology, uh, uh, their mononeuritis multiplex is, and peripheral neuropathy are the most common one, especially in EGPA. But there could be many other uh, CNS manifestations. And finally, you know, cardiac is most common in eGPA, especially in the seronegative. It's rare in, in, uh, in GPA and MPA. Uh, musculoskeletal symptoms are common in all three. And then the skin is most common in eGPA with erythematose nodules, and in MPA with, with uh, palpable vasculitis. Now that you know what is a vasculitis, that you know how to put them together, that you know what are the clinical manifestation and the pathogenesis, let's go over treatment. And uh, the first things, some principles of the treatment is that this is a multidisciplinary approach. You know, we need the ENT, we need the ophthalmologist when there's eye involvement, we need the pulmonologist, we need the nephrologist so, and rheumatologist. So it's a, it's a multidisciplinary. And the first thing when you are faced with a question if patient has one of these syndrome, is you individualize and you say, am I dealing with a limited disease or am I dealing with a systemic disease? Am I dealing with a non-organ threatening disease or am I dealing with a life or organ threatening disease? And then when we start treatment, what we like to do is like the oncologists do. We induce remission and then we want to maintain that remission, preventing the drug toxicity and treating the sequela and the consequences of the disease like the tracheal stenosis or the monoritis you know, if the patient get those. Remember, this is a skill. They cause major and permanent damage, but we have efficacious treatment. The treatment is often toxic and relapses are common. So for acute treatment, so for the patient who present with an acute manifestation of the disease, glucocorticoids is what saves their life and the kidneys, but at a short term, as I mentioned. So don't delay if you have a patient with diffuse pulmonary hemorrhage that you have related infection and inpatient with a rapidly progressive GN to initiate steroid usually in a pulse way and at a high dose. And then you can wait to stabilize the patient to get your tissue that you should get it at least within two weeks of initiation, initiation of treatment. So I'm gonna give you a brief perspective about the history of the treatment of this disease in this slide. In, uh, in the 50s, I think it was in 1958, yeah. In the 50s, this guy Walton published in the British uh, Medical Journal a prospective study of patients who had uh, renal involvement with Wegeners. I'm using the term Wegeners because the term that he was used at that time. And uh, he followed this cohort of patients prospectively, and they all were dead within five months. So this was a first prospective study on 
what we now know is an ankylosteritis with renal involvement. Then, you know, the steroids came available, and this guy, Hollander, also in, in an internal medicine journal, he published a prospective study of the use of glucocorticoid for patients who had renal involvement due to Wegener's. They were biopsy proven, and this prolonged their life only by a year, and this was a prospective cohort of patients. Then in the uh, 70s and 80s, we had cytotoxic, and they started using some of these cytotoxic, mainly cytoxin, for the treatment of uh, systemic vasculitis, but of Wegener's in this particular situation. And what it showed is that they were effective. 80% of the patients were alive at five years. However, they were alive at five years, but with a lot of problems. Two to four uh, fall increase in malignancy, infertility, bone marrow suppression. And then in the 2000s, we went crazy trying to find something to prevent that. And we did a lot of different studies that were very good. And we have the psychosarin, which is cytoxin induction for three to six months, followed by imurin. This is what we were doing until just a few years ago. Uh, we have the cyclops, which you compare IV cytoxin versus PO, showing that PO was a little bit more effective, but you could use both. We have the Wegnet that showed that anti-TNF had no role in this disease. We have the Improve that showed that mycophenolate could be used, but not as effective as Imuran for maintenance. And then in 2010, two pivotal articles were published in the New England Journal of Medicine about the management of these vasculitis that had made, have changed uh, uh, the field of vasculitis. Uh, the RAFE, briefly, what they did is that they compared uh, patients with antivasculitis uh, that they were induced with cytoxin followed by imurin, which is what we used to do, and we still do in some cases, uh, versus just four pulses of rituximab. And at a year, what it showed was that rituxan was not inferior to uh, cytoxin, and it led to the FDA approval of this agent for the treatment of two forms of ankylosteritis, GPA and MPA. They excluded patients who are mechanically ventilated or who are near, near end-stage renal disease. In the uh, retos bags, these were patients who were near end-stage renal disease. They have severe renal disease, and they did retoxin, four pulses and two mini pulses of cytoxin, followed by nothing versus cytoxin followed by imurin. And in a year, they compared the two groups, and what they found was that uh, over a year, one course of retoxin achieved the same results as six months of cytoxin followed by six months of imurin. So this led in 2011 to the approval of rituximab, and we use the same dose that the oncologists use, is the 375 milligram per square meter weekly time four. And the reason why this, we choose uh, or we prefer this dosing compared to the rheumatoid dosing, which is one gram twice a day, twice uh, uh, divided by two weeks, is because we know that there's better tissue penetration. And you remember these things happen within the lymph nodes and in, in deep tissue with the use of the. And then what do we do for the limited disease? For the limited disease, we prefer 
methotrexate, and then we maintain with methotrexate. And there's still few that we still use cytoxin. Like I still prefer cytoxin if I have a case of pachymeningitis, for example, due to, to uh, GPA. So, uh, but then after we induce remission, we know that these patients tend to relapse, and that hasn't changed. So for that reason, then, we need to do a maintenance. And for maintenance, we have several options, but the two main ones are Rituxan and Imuran. And I'm going to show you uh, the data. So we know that Rituxan has a maintenance from many prospective, uh, retrospective trials. But then this study uh, was published in 2014, uh, showed compare Rituxan to Imuran for maintenance, and it led to the FDA approval of rituximab for maintenance of the ankylovasculitis. And what they did in this study is that they uh, <clears throat> induced all the patients with cytoxin and they randomized to either rituxan with this regimen or imuran with this regimen. And what they found at a period of uh, uh, two years is that rituxan was superior to imuran in maintaining and preventing relapse. And there were more uh, problems in the patient or more side effects in the patient or toxicity that were receiving imuran. Uh, however, there are other studies that show that a gram is as effective. It given either one every four months to six months. Uh, and there's the Rituxarim 2 who's presented at the ACR showing both being equally effective, a gram of of uh, rituxan every four months next to Zimiran. Uh, the Meritzen maintenance with rituxan too uh, is that they say, well, is there any way that we can find a marker to tell who is going to be doing better to this maintenance and, and save money and time? And what they did is they compare uh, rituxan at a fixed dose, one gram every six months, versus just giving rituxan only if there was uh, an increase in the CD19, so when the B cell reconstituted, that they measure every three months, or the ANCA uh, titers went up by two times. Uh, and what they found was that the best thing is to do the fixed dosing, not to use the CD, CD19 count or the ANCA levels for follow-up and management of the disease. So there were only 28 relapses, 17% uh, of them were in the tailor, in the one who were, were measuring, and only 9% on the one who were receiving six, uh, 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 one gram every six months. Eventually, the length of therapy, we don't know. There is an ongoing trial for five years that will tell us the maintenance. I'm a believer that it needed at least for five years. And I just put this one because I wanted to do something really up-to-date, and it was from last month. Uh, it was the Brevas, and it was a study that they induced with rituximab. And then you say, let's maintain with Imiram, which, you know, is cheaper and less, probably less toxic. And, uh, <clears throat> but let's give them belimumab or, or anti-B cell proliferation factor anti-bleeds, so that the B cells won't come and see if there's less relapses. And what the study shows is that it doesn't reduce the risk of relapse. And it was just published, uh, the result, last month. So what 
do I do for management of these diseases? I offer maintenance to all my patients. Uh, I and then I have two options, rituximab of amiran. And I tend to use rituximab for the non-fulminant one, the one like the one the patient I presented. You do it one gram every like the uh, <clears throat> the protocol, who the FDA approved protocol. But if they had really bad disease, they were on a mechanical ventilator before, or their kidneys are near. I prefer to give them one gram every six months, probably indefinitely. I put there five years because that's what I tend to treat all of them. If there's pregnancy planning, uh, I use Imuran and uh, metotrexate for the limited disease. And all these patients should receive PJP prophylaxis. My preferred is uh, Septra DS three times a week, but you could use single strength once a week. Uh, there's also atovaquone, uh, inhaled pentamidine, and uh, Dapson for PJP prophylaxis. And now that I mentioned the PJP prophylaxis, I like to use the CEPTRA as a preferred one, as I mentioned, because it's not only it's been shown to reduce the rate of PJP, prevent PJP, but it also has anti-metalloproteinase activity, so it has anti-inflammatory properties, and, it's been, and this study shows that prophylaxis with CEPTRA reduces serious and adverse events. Uh, for the refractory, so there's a small percentage that we do these, so we induce them, and you should see response within two to four weeks. At six weeks, they should be, the kidney should clear, the lung infiltration should be a lot better, uh, the skin lesions almost disappear. I mean, it's amazing how quickly they work. But sometimes, six weeks later, after we have given these drugs, they are still having proteinuria or worsening, or still activating sediment, or the lungs have something new. So those are refractory. Those are very rare, extremely rare. But we have a protocol of cytoxin followed by tocilizumab. And recently, there's really uh, a good results of the trial that they're using with Avacopan. This is anti-C5A that the nephrologists are using, and there's a, a phase three trial right now that is enrolling. But the results of the phase two were like really uh, published in this trial were really impressive uh, for this patient who had refractory disease. I put a few things about the thoresis because I, I get this question constantly, and I'm going to admit this still when I have everything. The patient is doing really, really bad. I use it. and I. But most of the studies are really disappointing. And here are the many different randomized and uncontrolled studies. And what they have shown, even if your catenin was above 5 or uh, 2.8, is that it doesn't affect the long-term mortality or the relapse rate if you freeze this patient when they presented really ill. And... Uh, for the lungs, there's not really randomized controlled trials. The largest one comes from Japan, and they, they did well. And then this is through personal communication. The result of the PEXIBAS, it's out there, and they are saying that they're going to publish it, you know. Uh, but through personal communication, what I know is that the plasma exchange did not satisfy the requirement of the primary endpoint. 20% were still on end-stage renal that did not receive free plasma exchange versus 31% who received the plasma exchange. And for EGPA, 
There's also good news. We have an FDA drug approved this year, which is anti-IL-5, that is used as mepolizumab for uh, the use of EGPA. So in conclusion, I hope that you have a better understanding of the antivasculitis. Of course, these conditions cause a lot of uncertainty. Uh, it can be confused with many other syndromes, especially at presentation. They can cause significant morbidity or mortality. They're a challenge to manage and a challenge to follow. Uh, but nowadays we have effective treatment and patients are doing much better than they were doing in the past. And with that, I want to thank you all for inviting me here to this beautiful green area, Texas Soare, uh, and, uh, and I'm entertained any question that you have on vasculitic or any rheumatology topic. And thank you. Well, that was a really, uh, really interesting, thorough talk. I'm just curious, in the maintenance phase, do you try and control the environmental factors you talked about, staph and silica? Uh, no, because I, I give them the PJP prophylaxis that covers the nasal state, and you are not to stop that PJP prophylaxis until after six months that you have stopped either the cytoxan or rituximab. And then in regard to the environmental factor, no, because most of the time they need the salary to pay for the treatments, and it's related to the type of work that they do. So I told them to use a mask. Uh, uh, livestock, caves, uh, people who work in coal minings are the one that they have that environmental factor. And the other thing is that it's a hypothesis. It still hasn't been proved. Yeah. So. Your data you showed that rituximab and cyclophosphamide uh, uh, output in terms of time to remission. But uh, what's your thought about which would you use some of your critically ill events? Would you get some improvement with cyclophosphamide more quickly? So if I, if I have a patient, and I, this I get a lot, uh, a diffuse alveolar remoderation with, you know, we just had a, an airman on his last day of training collapsing the field, and he came with a diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, so he couldn't consent to anything, so I had to talk to the mother. And I offered to those both, cytoxan or rituxan. Most of the time they said, which one would you prefer? And I prefer rituximab. However, when they are very ill, like we had one, we pulse him, and as soon as we switch into uh, PO, and he was on the vent, we lowered the dose, and while we were getting our studies, he rebled, and he even needed ECMO. And what I did with that, I did the Ritosvax. So I gave him cytoxin uh, 500 times two, divided by two weeks, by a week, and then Ritoxin three. And he came off the vent, came off ECMO, and he's doing well. Uh, this happened just two months ago. Uh, so uh, I prefer if after three days on a vent, after I have induced them, they don't come with the venia, I might do a mini cytoxin. Uh, but I still prefer to use the standard rituxan because most of them do well. And most of them come off the vent later, even after the pulse. Uh, just for clarification for the PJP prophylaxis, so that's regardless of the steroid dose that you have them on, you're keeping them on 
beyond their other immunosuppressant treatments. Yes, that's regardless of the steroidals and 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 for these syndromes, it's it's been proven that they need the PJP prophylaxis. For others, it's a little bit controversial, but for these syndromes, they do. And it's uh, not only because of the steroid, but the other immunosuppressive agents that we give them. So even if I taper them at six months, or I, which I usually take me a little bit longer to taper them to zero, I continue the PJP prophylaxis until I decide when I'm going to stop that rituximab for these syndromes, okay? I don't do that with lupus. Thank you, I, I enjoyed that talk a lot. Um, can I ask you about a little topic you mentioned, spiritus and episcleritis? Mm -hmm. so that's confusing to us in internal medicine. Um, we always ask about alendronate and bisphosphonates. We usually refer to ophthalmology to see if there are cells there and then we try a treatment, but we, we don't usually think of, of sending ANCA tests or that sort of thing. Do you see it commonly enough that that should be perhaps ordered in everybody with that, or only if it relapses, or only if it doesn't quiet down with topical steroids? How do you approach that? How do I approach that? Yeah, so with episcleritis, I'm not too worried, because that in reality, episcleritis, they don't need even steroids, and, uh, and I just look that they don't have relapsing polychondritis, that they don't have EGPA by, through a history and physical exam, and I do not order uh, for their serologies. For scleritis, I do order them, uh, especially if the ophthalmologist sent it because it's been uh, quite refractory to topicals or systemic. And most of the time, they require systemic when they have scleritis, systemic steroids. Uh, so for all the patients with scleritis, uh, I do order the ANCA plus the others. So I do a, it's a, a full history and physical exam. I do check uh, to make, I check rheumatoid factor on those because scleritis can, we see it more with rheumatoid arthritis and, we, and then with this, I check the GPA and PA. They have done their infectious workup. Uh, and then um, <clears throat> surprisingly, I have found several that they are PR3 positive and high titer, and probably what they have is a limited GPA. And then I add in methotrexate to those particular cases, but for scleritis, I do. Let me take one last question, John. Um, I was wondering where these patients come from to get to you. Is there others, any data or any impression whether, how many of them come from being um, uh, critically ill, as in your, your first patient, how many of them come to you from ENT, how many come from nephrology, and how many of them come from primary care? Yeah, so I talk more about the, the address, the ones that come through the ICU, but it's about a, a third, a third, and a third. Uh, but it's a little, a little bit more, I see, acutely uh, when they come from the unit. But I had, my main referrals are from uh, ophthalmology, to believe, to, to present it like scleritis uh, or orbital lesion. Uh, uh, but in, in nephrology is the second group that I get. Uh, but most of them come from nephrology, actually, not ENT. Nephrology, ophthalmology, and the ICU. Yeah, but nephrology is uh, the one that I see the most. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for an excellent talk. Thank you. Thank you.